We're, we're in the Joshua generation. This is part two. And we're going to read from Joshua 2 and just verse 1 and, uh, and get right into this. I feel like I've got a, a, a word, a message for you today. I, I pray I can deliver it. We'll pray in just a moment. But look with me to Joshua 2 verse 1. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia Grove. From Acacia Grove. This was the very last part, the last stop on the journey of the Moses generation. This was the last stop on the journey for the Joshua generation before it entered into the promised land. This was the last vestiges of failure after Kadesh Barnea and the cursing and the judgment that ensued there. So Joshua the son of Nun sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. So we're preaching on the Joshua generation. I want to say a prayer before we're seated. Father, I thank you for this scripture. I thank you for these words. I pray that you would anoint me to speak what you've laid on my heart, what you want us to hear. I pray that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us. And I just give you the praise for it. May you be glorified before this day is over. And we give you praise for that in Jesus' name. Everybody say amen. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Now, last week in part one, we looked at the death of Moses and the beginning of the Joshua generation. We saw how that that the Lord approached Joshua and said, Moses, my servant, is dead. Deuteronomy 34 gives us interesting details regarding the death of, of Moses. It says, Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is across from Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead as far as Dan and all Naphtali and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh and all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the south and the plain of the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I'll give it to your descendants. I have caused you to see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he, apparently God, buried him in a valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows his grave to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. And the children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. So the days of weeping and mourning for Moses ended. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the children of Israel heeded him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. But since then there has not arisen, listen to this, in Israel, a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, in all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt before Pharaoh, before all his servants, And in all his land, and by all that mighty power and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all of Israel. Moses was an incredible leader, an incredible mentor to Joshua. But when Moses died, Joshua 
had to carry on. And carry on he did. He faced enemies Moses never did. He fought battles Moses never did. He entered promises Moses never did. He learned to sow and reap. Moses had manna and quail. Joshua didn't have that luxury. Joshua lived in a world that Moses never knew. And we live in a world that previous generations never knew. As awesome as previous generations in the church have been, we are facing enemies and we are facing obstacles and fighting battles that those previous generations never did. We are the Joshua generation. And last week we looked at how Joshua was victorious in this brave new world. We talked about how he learned to linger in the presence of the Lord. He was hungry for the presence of the Lord. He sought after the presence of the Lord. He spent time in the presence of the Lord. And he was a worshiper. We also saw that he walked in the Word of God. He developed a relationship with the Word of God. And we'll revisit that in a week or so when we look at the battle of Jericho. But today we're going to focus in on this spy mission. If you ever go to Washington, D.C., you need to visit the Spy Museum. Has anybody ever been to the Spy Museum in Washington, D.C.? It is fantastic. You have to pay. It's not a national museum, but it is incredible. Joshua knew something about spying. He was a retired spy. You may recall the original 12 spies seem to have been sent. I preached about this because of Moses' own apprehensions regarding the military capabilities of the seven nations that were in the promised land. God had already told him in Deuteronomy 7, these nations are stronger and mightier than you. So why not just go with that? But he told those original spies, find out if the cities really are uh, walled and, and, and see if the people really are mighty. And God didn't even mention the giants. I've preached about that before because the giants didn't matter. God was going to give them the victory regardless. But the spies were freaked out. Those 12 spies, 10 of them were freaked out and, and filled the congregation with fear. It's been said that those who don't learn from history are doomed to what? Repeat it, right? So Joshua was determined not to repeat the mistakes of that failed spy mission where Moses has sent the 12 spies out. Last time Moses sent 12, but this time Joshua only sent two. Maybe it was because of that failure. Joshua and Caleb were the only two spies that were worth their salt. And so this time Joshua sent two, and he was careful who he sent. Some traditions say that the two spies were Caleb, the good spy from the previous mission, and Eleazar, who was Aaron's son, Moses' nephew. He was a priest. Other traditions say the spies were Othniel, which would be Caleb's brother, and perhaps Salmon, who was a prince of Judah. But whoever they were, you can be sure that Joshua carefully vetted them and handpicked them. When Moses sent the spies out the first time, all of Israel knew about it. They knew they were going to spy out the land, but this time it was on the DL. It was a covert operation. Nobody in Israel knew that he was sending out these spies. 
And Joshua instructed them, go view the land, especially Jericho. The word view means to have vision, to, to, to look at it, scope it out, describe it to us so we can see it here on this side as we enter in. Now, Jericho was a wicked place. Everybody say wicked. It was a bad, bad place. And you don't want to hear how bad it was. Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 12 gives us a description of it. They, they had human sacrifice. Not only that, child sacrifice, witchcraft, necromancy. It, it, was a, it wasn't a video game. It was the real deal. It was awful. It was extremely wicked. And it was a threat to the plans and purposes of God. That's why God would wipe them out because he would get the seed of the woman into the earth. Jericho was a city-state, had a king, had an army. It was near the Jordan. It was at the entrance to Canaan. If Israel could get a, a foothold here, they would have a base from which they could conquer all of Canaan. Now, Jericho was famous for one thing in particular. Can you guess what that would be? It's walls, right? They had built a wall, and they made Mexico pay for it, right? I'm just kidding. I don't, I don't know where that came from. Probably. They were famous for their walls. In the mid-20th century, excavations of ancient Jericho discovered the walls of Jericho to be something like this. I used to picture them differently, but I've got a picture here. It was really walls, as in two walls. There was an outer wall, a lower wall, and an inner wall, an upper wall. And they had built up earth uh, between the two. These walls, that outer wall was about six feet uh, thick. And, and it was, uh, the inner wall was about 12 feet thick. They were about 30 feet high. These were massive, intimidating, impregnable uh, walls that looked sky high. Deuteronomy 9, 1 describes them that way. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today and go into dispossessed nations greater and mightier than yourself, cities great and fortified up to the heaven. The walls surrounding Jericho were surrounding about 10 acres or so. There, there was a population within the walls, but there was also a large population on the outside of the walls. And when Jericho was threatened, everybody would run into the safety of the walls. So Joshua sent these two spies. They went straight to Jericho. They walked right into the city through the gates. And Jericho was already on high alert because they were aware of the Hebrews coming into Canaan. They knew they were on the move, and, and the fact that two strangers had entered the city had not gone unnoticed. Jericho's intelligence agency said that these two interloping strangers were indeed Hebrews and indeed Hebrew spies. The two spies went straight to the bad part of town and literally found their way into a hole in the wall. And technically, it was a house in the wall. It was really not the ideal place to live because if the city was ever attacked, then that wall would become a front line of attack. This was more than a house, though. It was an inn or a tavern. Perhaps it was both. A brothel because it belonged to a prostitute 
by the name of Rahab. In Hebrew, the word translated harlot can also mean innkeeper. Josephus points this out. But she's also mentioned in the New Testament, and the Greek leaves no room for doubt. She was a prostitute. And if you think about it, the fact that these spies went to that tavern seemed to be a brilliant strategy on, on, and if you look at it in one particular way, because they were attempting to hide and remain anonymous, just two strangers in town in a house of ill repute. Now she, we say she's a prostitute and, 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 and we have certain ideas, you know, about how bad of a sin that is, but really sin is sin, wouldn't you say? And so she's really just a sinner among sinners without hope, without a covenant of people that was doomed, these dwellers of Jericho. She's a prostitute. They have sacrifice, child sacrifice, human sacrifice. They're all really bad. They're really bad off. They're all really pretty much doomed. And, 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 and so it, it, it's just it's a bad situation. But this girl Rahab, I'm telling you, she's going to have a moment. It, it's pretty amazing. Now, I want to bring this home. I'm talking about the Joshua generation. Everybody say the Joshua generation. Let's look at verse, verse 2. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from, where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut at night, when it was dark, that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly. You may overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid out in order on the roof. Then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan, to the fords. And as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now Rahab was covering for these Hebrew spies who had come into her city. Something she was used to doing, that is covering for people, strangers, travelers, patrons. But this time she was covering for them because she recognized there was something different about these two men. She could sense it. It was a God thing. They were different. Their God was different. Their God seemed real to them. Their God was for them. And against anyone who got in their way, she had gods of her own, Baal, Balak, Ashtar. And and they were fickle. They required the death of their children. And, and, And they were kept in bondage where it seems like these two spies had a God who delivered people out of bondage. There was something different about them. They had a momentum. She could feel the urgency, the energy, the expectation, the confidence that exuded from these men. Something was right about them. And something was so wrong about her and her people. These men were going somewhere. 
and, and she and her people were going nowhere fast. They were doing something great, and she was wasting her life away. It seemed like these men were aligned with this awesome God's plans and purposes while she and her people were opposed to this God's plans and purposes. And so right then and right there, she changed sides. She switched sides. She sent her fellow Jerichoans, some who had possibly been her customers at one time, she sent them on a wild goose chase looking for phantoms. And then Rahab goes, hides these men, and she goes to them, and she teaches them a Bible study. I love this. She teaches them a Bible study. Now, she's, she's a woman of, uh, uh, that is a Canaanite, a Gentile, uh, from a bad situation, false gods, demon spirits that are, are gods in their world. And, and, and the guys that she's about to teach a Bible study to, this is possibly uh, a fearless, faithful man of faith, Caleb or Eleazar, Moses' uh, nephew, a priest, the son of Aaron, or Salmon, a, a, a prince from one of the leading families of Judah. And here she is, a Canaanite prostitute, and she's going to teach him a Bible study. Look at verses 8 through 11. Are you with me? Is this exciting? Verse 8, now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the kings of the Amorites who are on the other side of the Jordan, Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, listen to this theology here. He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Oh, my Lord, she's, she's having revelation right here before our very eyes. Sion was an Amorite king who refused to let Israel pass through his land after the exodus. He was mean. He had a bad attitude. And the Moses generation squashed old Sion, right, like sour grapes. Og was the king of Bashan. He was the last, this is interesting, of the Rephaim giants, so to speak. He was upwards the scripture says this, of 13 feet tall. What? That is massive. 13 feet tall, and he was fierce and foul. The Moses gener- generation defeated him, seized 60 of his walled cities and many more towns and villages. The Moses generation, it says it, utterly defeated these two kings. And the Joshua generation was filled with the same power and was lasered in on Jericho. Now I want to take just a moment here and tell you a few things. We come from a people, folks, us people of faith. We come from a people who who have turned their worlds upside down, who changed the world as they knew it. Men and women of faith, that Moses generation 
And even in the church age, I mean from Pentecost into the 20th century, there have been generations that have turned their worlds upside down. But like I told you last week, they turned their world upside down, but they can't turn our world upside down. They're gone. Moses is dead. And I can't turn their generation, their world upside down. I've only got this world, but I've got the same God. And I've got the same power. And I've got the word. And if God is for us, who can be against us? And and, and so, and here's another thing that's so interesting to me. There are people in this world. That we are supposed to turn upside down. There are people in this world, like Rahab, who are ready to change sides. They're looking for a good God. They're looking for a powerful God. They're looking for a God who knows how to set the captive free. They're looking for a God who knows how to heal the brokenhearted. They're looking for a God that if he's on your side, who can be against you? They're looking for that God of heaven and earth. They're looking for that God, and they're willing to change sides, and they're watching you. They've seen what God's done in your life. There are people in this room today that have been delivered from alcohol and drugs and all kind of situations that were against them. But God stepped in and made a way where there seemed to be no way. And there are people that have been blinded by the God of this world, but they've seen what God has done in your life. And they're saying, I want what you have. I'm willing to make the journey. I'll leave everything to get what you've got. There are people. People like Rahab who are willing, they're hungry, and they've lived messy lives. Don't get me wrong. They've got a messy past. They've got a messy family, but they've seen the victories in your life and the spring in your step and the giants you've defeated, and they felt that momentum in your life, and they're willing to change sides. Who would have ever thunk that a prostitute in Jericho, would ever become a daughter of Zion. But I'm telling you, there are people in our world that you would never see them as being a church person. They're the unchurched. They're the de-church. They've unplugged and said, I'll never go there. But they've been watching. And they're saying, I'm tired of living the way I've been living, weighted down with guilt and condemnation. and, And I am ready For a change. There are people ready for a change. They're ready for a moment. Maybe somebody in the house today is ready for a moment. You're tired of being the one that's in bondage, watching the free rejoice. And you're saying, I want to taste that sweet taste of victory and freedom like you say you taste. I've watched it in you, and I want a piece of that. This is your moment. Listen, Joshua was coming to Jericho as a judge. He was coming to judge that city. But because Rahab repented and turned to the one true and living God, Joshua, instead of being her judge, was coming as her Savior. 
He was coming to rescue her. Joshua is the same name as Yeshua, Jesus. Same name. There are some in this house today. Jesus is coming back. I'm going to preach about this for a few minutes. Jesus is returning. Brothers and sisters, we don't preach enough about the soon return of the Lord. But I'm here to tell you, Jesus Christ will soon split the eastern sky and call His bride up to be with Him. And forever we will be with the Lord. Jesus is coming soon. We used to sing that song. Wesley, we laugh about it. We used to sing that song, those southern gospel quartets back in the day. They were all smiley and cheesy, right? I don't know if you're familiar with that, but southern gospel quartets, they'd all wear the matching suits. I should have thrown some pictures out. I might have offended some of you, though. It would be your favorite group, sure enough. But they'd wear those matching suits, and they'd sing that four-part harmony, Jeff. And, and it was, and so they'd stand, and they'd smile and pat each other on the back. You know what I'm talking about. And, and in the midst of the laughter, they would say lines like this. Well, Jesus is coming soon, morning or night or noon. Many will meet their doom. Smiling like a Cheshire cat. Many will meet their doom. Trumpets will sound. Hey! And everybody cheered. I used to play drums at, at the gospel hayride. Hey, when I was playing drums at youth camp, I also played drums at the gospel hayride in, in Shreveport, Louisiana for a southern gospel cor- uh, trio. And, and, and we would sing those songs and I'd play the drums and people be out there smiling and just laughing it up and eating nachos. I've been around back in my days, you know, eating nachos. But I'm telling you, Jesus Christ is returning. And to some, he's going to be a judge. But to others, oh, it's, he's going to be a savior. <laughs> Hallelujah. He's going to be a savior. And we get caught up on one side of grace. You hear what I'm saying? In the modern church, we get caught up on one side of grace, that Jesus loves people, and, and God loves people. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And, and it's as if we have totally written off the wrath and the justice of God. Justice was served in Christ. And if you want Him as your Savior, you got to be in Christ because that's where the wrath was absorbed. But if you refuse and you stay outside of Christ, I'm telling you, He's coming back as a judge. Everybody will not be saved. There is not. It, there, it is a myth, a theological air castle, a spiritual air castle, a myth. It is a lie to think that everybody is going to be saved. Everybody's not going to be saved. He's coming back. And he's coming back as a judge to some and a savior. To others, lest we forget, Jesus said the fig tree, which is a type of Israel throughout Scripture, would bloom again. And Jesus said it, the generation that sees this will not pass until all things are fulfilled. In 70 A.D., the Roman general Titus sacked Jerusalem 
and raised, R-A-Z-E-D, raised the temple, brought it down, destroyed it, fulfilling Jesus' own words that said, there will not be one stone left on another. This temple is coming down. Got him in trouble with all the religious folks. That temple was something that would never come down in their minds. And Jesus said, there's not going to be one stone left on another. And then just shortly after that, Titus marches into town and destroys it. And those soldiers were paid with loot that they got from places they destroyed. And that temple was filled with gold. It was, it was wallpapered, if you will, in, in, in a, a sheet of gold. And they burned that thing and melted that gold. And that gold went inside the, the cracks and crevices of the stones and the bricks. And those soldiers dismantled that temple rock by rock, stone by stone, just like Jesus said. And they pried all that gold to get it out of there. And from that day until 1948, there was no Israel national. There was no fig tree. But in 1948, almost 2,000 years later, Israel became a nation. The fig tree began to bloom. All the generations from 33 A.D. or 70 A.D. until 1948 never saw that. They never said, we're going to go over here to Israel. There was no national Israel from 70 A.D. until 1948 A.D. That was the Moses generation. But the Joshua generation, that generation, Jesus said, the generation that sees this will not pass until all things be fulfilled. Folks, we are the generation upon whom the ends of the world have come. Rush is described as a bear in Scripture. I told you we're going to get some end time stuff here. Russia is described as a bear in Scripture, and she's stirring. These last couple of weeks have been interesting. The U.S. shot down that fighter over Syria. The Russians said he'll consider all non-Syrian and Russian aircraft over Syria to be hostile. And they suspended that hotline with the United States. In Ezekiel 38, God said he would put a hook in the jaw of Gog and Magog, Meshach and Tubal, or Moscow and Georgia, the Republic of Georgia. He would put a hook in their jaw and he would drag them down to the valley of Megiddo, Israel, where all the nations of the earth would be arrayed against Israel. And I'm here to tell you the United Nations constantly lines up against Israel diplomatically, but one day they will line up against Israel militarily. And Jesus, though, will come down when all hope looks lost. Jesus will come down through the clouds all the way to the earth. And and he'll put his foot on the Mount of Olives and split that mountain in two. And he's coming back with his angels and with the saints of the Most High God. And the Antichrist will be defeated. And the false prophet will be defeated at the battle of Armageddon. Don't say Jesus is not coming. I'm telling you, Jesus is coming. And he is coming soon. 2 Peter 3, listen to this. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. Scoffers, walking in lust, it sounds like our days. And they say, where is the promise of His coming? 
For since the fathers, fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water. By which the world that existed perished, being flooded by water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved, listen, for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to a place of repentance. You want to know why the Lord hasn't come back yet? Sometimes, you know, like as believers, we're like, Lord, I'm ready for you to come back. I mean, for a number of reasons. Selfishly, because I've been saying you're going to come back. And it sure would help to have some justification for me saying that. But that's just my flesh. The other side of me, the, the more spiritual side of me is like, I'm ready to see you face to face, Lord. I'm ready to put all these cares behind me and forever be with the Lord. But you know why he hasn't come back? Because he is patient and he is waiting because there's more Rahabs out there. There may be some Rahabs in this room. He's waiting on you. He's waiting on you to turn to him and come to a place of repentance. That's why he hasn't come back. In 2 Thessalonians 1, listen to this. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, listen, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished. You you don't hear this preaching anymore, I'm just saying. You don't hear this preaching. Jesus loves everybody and and everybody's going to be saved eventually. No, they're not. No, they're not. It's a lie. Listen to this. These shall be punished with, an, with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes in that day to be glorified in His saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Listen, when Jesus returns, He's coming back as a judge. But if you've turned to Him, He's coming back as your Savior. Hallelujah. It, it's a... It's, it's a Totally different mission when he returns for the bride of Christ, for the body of Christ, than those who are outside. He's coming back. Everybody say he's coming back. And, and, and I'm, I'm wrapping up here. Matthew 1 through 5. Uh, Matthew 1, 5 says, listen to this, Rahab. Rahab married a man named Salmon. Like I said before, it's probably, possibly, one of the two spies that Joshua sent in. He was a prince of Judah. In other words, he was a lead worshiper. He was a worshiper from one of the leading families. He was a shouter, a dancer, a praiser, a clapper, a singer, a guitar player, a musician. He was a worshiper. And he married this Canaanite who was a former prostitute who was now in love with the God of heaven and earth, the God of the Hebrews, 
the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Boaz, uh, 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 Rahab, Mary, Salmon. And Salmon and Rahab had a son. And that son's name was Boaz. Now Boaz married Ruth. Now Ruth was a Moabite. She was from a wretched, disgusting clan. But Boaz was willing to marry Ruth, the Moabitess, because she loved God. She had turned to God. She had forsaken everything and turned to God. And, and, and Boaz's father was willing to marry his mother, Rahab, the Canaanite who loved God. Boaz and Ruth had a son named Obed. Obed had a son named Jesse. And Jesse had a son named David. Stand with me right now. Did you hear what I said? Rahab, from a cursed people, from a sinful city, with nothing to offer God, turns and falls on the mercy of God and is saved out of that judgment. Joshua comes as a Savior. And she marries another believer, Salmon. And through the family line, you see where she is the great, great grandmother of David, King David, King David. Jesus would be called the son of David. You trace it on down. She's in the bloodline. This Canaanite prostitute from a bunch of sinful people, she is in the bloodline of Jesus Christ himself. Not only that, but the Talmud says, the Talmud, the Hebrew writings say that there were eight prophets who descended from Rahab, including Jeremiah. She had nothing to bring to God. He he was sending in judgment. You're doomed. We're going to look at it. Those walls came crashing down. They were not, there were no safety at all. You can't save yourself. You can't escape the judgment of God. You and I can't build walls big enough. We can't get religious enough. We can't get good enough to escape the judgment of God. The only thing that saved Rahab was a scarlet thread hanging out of that window. It was a type of blood. It was a type of the covenant There were sworn oaths tied to that scarlet thread. If you have this hanging out your window, girl, when the walls come crashing down all around you, your piece of the wall is going to stand. And whoever is inside that that former brothel that has the blood, the sign of the blood on it, they're going to be saved too. She gathered all her friends and her family. Hey. Listen, forget Balak, forget Baal, forget Astra. They've been killing our kids. They've been lying to us for years. This is the real deal right here. I'm telling you, I believe there's people in this room tonight, today, and, and there's people outside those four those doors right there, outside those doors, that they are they need to understand. They're learn, they're waking up, they're realizing these this religion of the past. It's just done us nothing but harm. This self-reliance has hurt us all these years. We've lost our kids. Look how messed up our families got. And, and they're turning and saying, but, but I hear there's, there's a God and He's got some people and He's doing something different and He's doing something new. And I'm going to fall hard on that. 
It's, it's goofy in our world because everybody's a Christian, right? There's so much Christianity here in the buckle of the Bible belt. But, but, but listen, so much of that is so shallow. And I'm, I'm, I'm begging you, I'm begging you, we've got to go deeper. There's salvation deep in this stuff, man. You've got to go deep. Uh, oh, Rahab was throwing, she was throwing in everything. She pushed all her chips in. It was now or never. It was everything. She was all in. Like, I'm all in on this. I'm going out on a limb. I'm lying to them, and I'm getting myself, my life is in, in I'm risking everything because I want this God of the Hebrews to come through. She knew they're coming. And I'm telling you, there's that feeling. There's something in the air. You can feel it. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Will he be your judge or will he be your savior? Listen to old Rahab. You've not gone too far. You've not done too much. I know a God whose arm is strong. Not only can it destroy, it can heal. It can save.